This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 22nd, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, we have Eric Hand, science news writer. He's here to talk about an astonishing find, a potential ninth planet in our solar system. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of daily news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on a twin study that looked at marijuana usage. Marijuana is a commonly used drug, both recreationally and medicinally. It's illegal, but is it unhealthy? This has been a tough question to answer so far. What's been the trouble? Trouble is, is that a lot of the studies that have been done so far only look at a single snapshot in time. So they ask somebody, how much marijuana do you smoke? And then what's your IQ? And they basically try to compare people who smoke or smoke a lot to people who don't smoke. But the problem is when you just do these snapshot type studies, it's hard to figure out what came first. Does somebody have a low IQ because they've been smoking a lot of marijuana or are they smoking a lot of marijuana because they have a low IQ? Or there are other confounding factors like family history or environment, education, things like that. And as I mentioned, this new study used twin pairs. It's a design that can get rid of a lot of confounding factors. How was this one set up? So basically what the researchers did was they looked at almost 800 pairs of twins in California and Minnesota, as you said, Sarah, identical twins. And they were enrolled in studies, uh, not specifically addressing this question, but in two ongoing studies addressing other questions. These twins enrolled between the ages of 9 and 11, and they were followed for 10 years. And what the researchers did is they parsed the data from the study, and they tried to figure out, well, when did these kids start using drugs, if they did? Was there cases where one twin was using marijuana and the other twin wasn't. And then also a lot of other variables like family environment and education and things like that. Was there a difference between pot-smoking twins and abstaining twins? And they did not find a difference. What they found was that overall IQ points tended to drop about four points during the study, but that was the same for twins that smoked pot and those that also did not smoke pot. So what the researchers say is there's probably other factors that are leading to this 
decrease in IQ that are not marijuana related. Now, before you go off and tell your teenage <laughs> children to smoke pot, of course, the study is not perfect. What are some of the cautionary notes we should keep in mind? Well, some of the problem is that the researchers didn't really look at how often and how much pot kids were smoking, which could have obviously a big impact. And there's also been studies that have shown that very chronic, very heavy pot use can potentially cause cognitive problems. And this study didn't really look at that either. So while it is suggestive that at least occasional pot use does not have an impact on uh, cognitive function, there are some caveats. Next up, we have a story on building a better maze. Alzheimer's disease is a truly tricky one, both to understand and to treat. One of the big problems is that medicines that appear to work in rodent models don't translate to people. This translation problem starts right at the beginning. People and rats aren't typically given the same kind of tests. For example, no one is putting dementia patients in a maze for some reason, but they are putting rats in them, right, Dave? Yeah, they do, but it's not really a maze in the classical maybe imagination of what a maze is. Basically, what they do with rodents is they put them in this large tank filled with water. And then somewhere in the tank, there's a platform that the rodents can see and they can swim to. And once the rodents learn where the platform is, the researchers raise the water level. So now that the platform is submerged and they make the water cloudy so the rodents actually can't see it. And the test is basically if they put the rodent at various places in the tank, can it remember where that platform is and swim to it. And what they found, at least with Alzheimer's studies, is that rodents who have sort of symptoms of Alzheimer's have a much harder time finding that platform. And so this has been sort of used to test drugs for Alzheimer's. But while those drugs are tested in rats and then eventually maybe in people, people are given a different test, right? What kind of tests are they usually given? Right. When we're testing some of the cognitive deficits in people, sometimes it's a written test or tests where they have to recall events or words. So they're not really given anything analogous to what we're doing with rodents. In this new study, humans were put into kind of more of a virtual maze, no swimming pools or anything like that. No swimming pools, uh, no cloudy water. What they did was they created this virtual countryside, and then they had people essentially get into what it was like a driving simulator. It was a steering wheel and a gas pedal, and the people had to drive around and find a lavender box. And the lavender box was always in the same place, and the people could sort of figure out where it was. There was landmarks like mountains and trees. And then once the people figured out where that box was, the researchers took the box away and said, well, there's now there's a buried treasure where that box used to be and see if you can find it based on memory. When they tested people on this maze with and without cognitive deficits, did they see some of those same differences that are seen when the mice or the rats are subjected to the water maze? Right. They found a lot of similarities, which suggests that this type of test could be a useful analog for the rodent maze test. And because of that, this actually might make it easier to translate drugs from rodents to people because now we can have a similar test for rodents and for people. You can see whether if a therapy helps a rodent find its platform better, will help this driver find the virtual treasure better. Lastly, we have a story on our many, many, many uninvited house guests. I'm talking about our bugs, our insect roommates. How many are there? Nobody knows until now. The first household bug survey has been published. Was this a phone survey, Dave? (laughs) 
This was not a phone survey. Uh, fortunately for us and our powers of imagination, the researchers actually went into the homes of various people, about 50 homes in Raleigh, North Carolina, a few years ago, and they tried to pick up as many different arthropods, and these are creepy crawlies like insects, spiders, mites, and centipedes that they could find. They crawled all over these homes. Uh, they vacuumed. They, I believe they used butterfly nets for some of them. How many bugs did they collect over the course of this study? Yeah, they were looking behind beds, furniture, baseboards, ceilings, shelves, closets. What they found, they found 10,000 specimens over about 50 homes. Now, that doesn't mean that's the extent of the arthropods that were there. That was just how many specimens they collected. But these 10,000 alone represented an average of about 100 different species per house. Wow. And what were some of the more predominant bugs? Flies were the most abundant, as is probably not surprising, uh, followed by spiders, beetles, ants, and book lice. (laughs) I don't even know what book lice are. (laughs) Well, what I thought was interesting was that it wasn't all about fleas and cockroaches and bed bugs at all. In fact, those were actually pretty rare in the samples that they found. Another cool aspect of this paper was... They discussed how the insects that live with us have changed over time. There's archaeological records. Right. So there's no more dung beetles, thanks to indoor plumbing, but there are a lot more drain flies because we have a lot more drains. And this is just a small sample, 50 homes in one county, basically. I wonder what the true range is for the bugs that live in our houses. That's a great question. I think we're going to need some more research to figure out just how many types of insects, how many types of arthropods, what the total impact is on our health and on our homes. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how the Venus flytrap counts and how that counting can determine whether it eats its prey or leaves it alone. Also a story about the earliest evidence for warfare among humans, thanks to an archaeological discovery of a prehistoric massacre. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about whether Ebola is really gone or whether it's coming back. Also, the latest on the clinical trial disaster in France. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Could the solar system have a giant ninth planet, one so far away that it takes 15,000 years to orbit the sun just once? That definitely messes with my non-technical understanding of our little corner of the universe. Science news writer Eric Hand is here to lay it all out for us. Eric, how can there be another planet and we just not know about it? Yes, Sarah, it, it does seem crazy, but the solar system is a huge place We're just now pushing at the edge of the solar system beyond Neptune. And it was only 20 years ago that we discovered the Kuiper Belt, all the small bodies beyond Neptune, the class of bodies in which Pluto resides. But this thing is is even further out. It's big, but it's, you know, between 7 to 30 times the distance of Neptune. That's how far away it is. It's just at the limit of detectability for even the biggest telescopes on Earth. So it's very far away, and its orbit is very different from ours. 
can it still be called a planet in the solar system? Is there something else that we should call this? I don't think anyone would argue that this would be a planet in the in the classical sense if it indeed exists and is the size of Neptune. And it would fulfill the strict definition of the IAU. It would clear its neighborhood gravitationally. So just because it it has an odd orbit or just because it's way far away, you know, no, this this would be a planet. All right. We're getting into the justifications. Let's get back to the discovery part of this. This object has not been directly detected. What kind of evidence is there for a giant ninth planet? Yeah. So this was an indirect detection. And it happened in the same way that Neptune was discovered in the 1800s. Neptune was discovered based on irregularities in the orbit of Uranus. In the same way, we've noticed that six objects way out there in the Kuiper Belt also have strange orbits, suggesting that something else has tugged them into position. And that something is this planet X, is this giant planet. One thing I noticed about the story is that if we're looking for planet X on one side of the solar system, these objects are on the other side. Why are they opposing each other like that? That's just a funniness of the dynamics. The scientists that discovered this, they spent a lot of time doing dynamical models. And it turns out that there's a resonance that keeps these objects clustered in that they're anti-aligned on the sky, like you say. And that's in part to keep these six objects safe from Planet X. So yes, Planet X kind of herds them into this clustered position. But if they were to cross too close to Planet X itself, they would, you know, get messed up as well. Um, Planet X is a big bully here. (laughs) And from the evidence that we have, what you've described, what do we know about this potential planet? Yeah, I mean, this has all been inferred. So so a lot of this is loose. They can say that it probably has a mass between 5 to 15 times Earth mass. So that places it near Neptune, which has 17 Earth masses. And they know how far away the orbit probably is and that it never comes closer to the sun than 200 astronomical units, which is about seven times further out than Neptune. Let's talk caveats now. There are still some open questions about this planet. Yeah. I mean, for starters, they need to find it. No one's going to believe in this indirect detection until they see it directly. They also have to explain how it got there. Right now, they think that the most likely explanation is that it formed alongside the other giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, at the very beginning of the solar system. And then it got knocked out by one of those four early enough that there was still gas, residual gas, in the solar system to slow down Planet X on its way out. So it didn't just keep going further and further away from us. Right. Those gravitational bumps or knocks from the other giant planets would have typically just ejected it from the solar system altogether. But the scientists that are making this claim have to invoke some gas to slow it down, to keep it in its distant, weird orbit. This is not the first time Planet X has been proposed. Do you feel like the evidence here, this idea that modeling six objects very far away and looking at their orbits and then saying, oh, well, there must be this other object that's big encircling the sun. Do you feel pretty confident about this as, yes, we have a planet here? Yeah, it's really not whether I feel confident about it. It's, <laughs> it's whether these scientists do. And, and yeah, you're right. There's over 100 years of searches for Planet X, and it's a checkered history. Lots of claims that turned out to be weird or or strange. These are really respected scientists one of whom is kind of responsible for the discovery that led to the demotion of Pluto. They spent a lot of time checking their work. They're really confident. 
other scientists that work in these fields, they're excited. They're cautious, but they're excited. One scientist told me that he thinks it's better than a coin flip that this planet actually exists. <laughs> and the next step is direct detection, getting an eye on this planet. How likely is that? And, and does that mean that it is a planet if we see it? Yeah, there's, there's good news and bad news. The, the, the bad news is this planet spends most of its time in its orbit where it's furthest away from the sun. So it's right at the limits of detectability, even for the largest telescopes on Earth. Luckily, that means they know where to look. They're also lucky in that they have a telescope that is really good at doing these sorts of searches. It's called the Subaru Telescope. It's in Hawaii. It's, it's owned by Japan. And it has a really large field of view, so they can look and take large stamps on the sky night after night in the hopes of pinning this down directly. So how likely are we to be back here again, say, next year or in a couple years, saying, it's done, we have a new planet, and it has a name? They're going to have to get lucky. The scientists that are making this claim, they think they have a decent shot of finding it or ruling it out in the next five years with time on this telescope in Hawaii. Other scientists could join in the hunt and try to get time themselves to look for it. It's all a matter of how much time on this one particular telescope do they get and can they rule out all the parts of the sky in which it's likely to orbit. We spot the planet. It's really there. It's in our solar system. Who gets to name it? That typically goes to the discoverer, so we don't know who that will be. The two planets that were discovered in modern times, Uranus and then Neptune, Neither of those were uh, named by the discoverer. It was more of a sort of public process where just kind of the name took hold. So it could be that the same thing happens in this case. It could end up being Planet X. It could be Planet 9. The researchers right now, while it's in limbo, the researchers are using the term Planet 9. Informally, uh, while they've been working on this problem, they've been calling it Planet Fatty. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you. Eric Hand is a staff writer for science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's AAAS.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.